podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about Trevor Madonga, who was Zimbabwe's first black batsman, but sadly his career and life was cut short. It's an amazing story, and so I got on a man who has just finished an incredible long read on it. My name is Liam Brickhill. I'm a sometime Zimbabwe cricket journalist and, and writer, although I haven't done too much of that recently. I do all sorts of things. The cricket writing is, is one thing, and I'm also involved in all sorts of other slightly more artsy cultural endeavours. We discuss Zimbabwe cricket, race, politics, drinking, Dave Houghton, Waka Yunus, Sakhalin Mushtaq, and so much more as we try to make sense of the short, amazing life and career of Trevor Madonda. Take me through the time when Trevor Madondo was the next big thing in Zimbabwe cricket. Really, that when Trevor really became known widely outside of his immediate circle is when he got to high school. He kind of breezed through junior school and there was obviously a talent there. But once Trevor got to this place called Falcon College, that's where people really, really started to take notice. He was a year overage. So he played when he was in Form 1, which is the beginning of high school. He played with Form 2s and Form 3s, which is also a feature of kind of Trevor's uh, early cricket career. He was often playing with people slightly older and often much bigger than him. So there's that side of it at at Falcon College, which was crucial to Trevor's legend growing. Um, And then there's the other side in his hometown of Mutare in the Eastern Highlands, where it also very much uh, the story of, of this young black batsman really started to grow. Back in the day, it's not so much the case anymore, but back in the day, Zimbabwe schools were a hotbed for cricket talent. I've forgotten this from your piece, actually. I didn't keep my notes correctly, but Alistair Campbell's father is involved as well, the former Zimbabwean number three and occasional captain. Was he a coach as well? Alistair Campbell's done everything, hasn't he? (laughs) He He has done a bit of everything. I think I mentioned in the piece that the Campbells are kind of Zimbabwe cricketing royalty, and that's a good way of describing that kind of dynastic family so Ian Campbell was, of course, a headmaster at Wilfordia, a very famous school that also produced the likes of Brendan Taylor, Malcolm Waller, and, and several other really good cricketers have passed through there. Ian was not so much a, a professional coach. And then this, in any, in any case, was before the era of professional cricket in, in Zimbabwe, but was someone who was very much an integral part of that cricket community and played a leading role in kind of nurturing young talent and passing on what knowledge there was in the community. And you mentioned before the sort of players that went through that school. Those are, if I'm not mistaken, both white players that you mentioned. Mm. Uh, Trevor yes. Madondo coming through the, the school system, so still through an elite system within Zimbabwe cricket. But how many young black players were coming through at that point? At that point, really not many. Um, and I think a good point to note here is that while Trevor and youngsters of that time were kind of pioneers in a sense. There's a rich history of um, Black Zimbabwean cricket stretching way back before independence, the 1960s, the Rhodesian days. But because of that separation in society, there was only a certain level to which talented cricketers could reach. Obviously, that started to change after independence. But at Trevor's time, it still would have been a fairly rare occurrence for there to be really talented, outstanding young black cricketers in that environment. 
And, you know, one of the things that you talk about a lot, well, the two things that you talk about a lot from his early cricket, other than the fact he was quite small and was playing above his age, is that he had a very brilliant cricket brain. And the other one is that he had, I think it's fair to say, a lot of attitude about the way that he played uh, his cricket. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and speaking to people who knew Trevor, this is certainly a thread that comes through. And it's not that Trevor was, from what I've, I've heard and the people I've spoken to, not that he was a particularly loud or brash individual or someone who spoke a lot, but he had his, his, he was strong-willed, he had his opinions and he knew what he thought about certain things. And if he didn't like something, he wasn't afraid to make it known that this thing is wrong or I don't like it. Uh, and he breaks through quite early on, so he's still quite young when he starts playing first-class cricket. And you talk about a game where he took on, uh, was it Glamorgan, who had, I think, a couple of England bowlers? Yeah, I mean, obviously at the time, fairly often you'd get county signs uh, coming through to Zimbabwe in the late 80s, early 90s. They'd come for kind of pre-season tours and things like that. Um, Trevor was obviously still at high school at the time, but he made his way into the uh, Matabililand first team, playing alongside the likes of Heath Streak, Craig Wishart and, and people like that but very much still a schoolboy. And his first class debut is very much a kind of throwback occasion. I, I, I think I speak about in the piece, Trevor going out to bat in a floppy hat. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so it was that era of cricket, floppy hats and flannels. And he batted way down the order and kept wicket. And at this stage, it's quite interesting because if you're talking about a cricketer now, you would be saying that they would be at a point where they were in academies, where they were being paid, where they'd be working on their game. There are obviously players who have slipped through the gaps over the last couple of years, like Nicholas Puran and, you know, and certainly players in Zimbabwe who've slipped through the gaps. But even someone like Colin Ingram had to come sort of the back door. So it does happen. But it feels like you had this player who everyone was pretty sure was a top quality player. But then he actually goes off to university in South Africa, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he? And so yeah. what's the disconnect there? Is it just Zimbabwe cricket wasn't professional enough in the late 90s or was there just not a structure? Well, we're still talking at this point when Trevor is um, heading off to university um, at that point. That's kind of mid-90s. So at the time, Zimbabwean cricket was stuck in this sort of limbo between professional and, and non-professional because you, you had obvious professionals like Dave Houghton and Andy Flower, Grant Flower. These were the first players to ever have professional contracts. Yep. Um, but around them, you have a lot of semi-professionals. And in the structure as a whole, it's still very much an amateur game, if you will. So in that sense, the, the historical context in terms of uh, where Zimbabwean cricket was at is his departure for university and kind of being part of the system, but also not really is, it, is an indicator that it was professionalizing, but it definitely wasn't there yet. There wasn't a lot of money in the game. ZC's efforts at kind of cricket development and widening the base of, of cricket in Zimbabwe does stretch back to the kind of uh, mid to late 80s. But it was small steps, you know, the small steps. It took a long time. And at that point, he certainly didn't have a, a professional structure around him. And he goes off to university. Did he start drinking sort of before he went to university? Or is it a classic case of being of a legal drinking age and being able to get it with a bunch of people who are also drinking? Yeah, I think that's the thing. From people I've spoken to who knew him on either side of that trip to, to South Africa. Schools in Zimbabwe also, very much including the school that, that Trevor went to, there's a strong um, kind of discipline it's very old school, so very kind of colonial British corporal punishment, uh, traditions, rules, that kind of thing. So you don't have a lot of freedom as a high school student. 
And, uh, you know, Trevor's reaction when he went to university and he's away from this for the first time, away from his parents and goes a bit wild is certainly not uncommon for, for young people who come out of that kind of restrictive structure and are suddenly now young adults in the world with, without anything to kind of hold them down. Hey, that's a fairly normal story, what you've just suggested, but he obviously takes it a little bit too far. One stage, he falls off a balcony, doesn't he, and, and injures himself, I'm assuming, when drunk. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Rose University also has, I must kind of admit that I also went to Rose University, and I've got to tell you that this sort of behavior <laughs> is, is not... Have, are you telling me you've fallen off a balcony? Have you fallen off that balcony? I've not fallen off that balcony in particular, but I've tumbled into several bushes, uh, if I can put it that way. So that's, um, it is, as you say, like there was a, a particularly kind of wild streak about Trevor, but I think it's also important to remember that these things are, are part of the culture. They're part of his milieu and drinking culture in Southern Africa is endemic. It's seen as a rite of passage almost for, for that, that young people go through. And yeah, that's kind of what happened with him. You tell an incredible story where I forget who he's playing against, but he drinks till 5.30 in the morning. The bus picks him up to take him to the ground at 6.30. He has to bat first. And you mentioned a few good bowlers that he has to go up against, but I'm going to mention one, which is Andre van Troost, who Indeed. was the Dutch fast bowler, who is still seen to be probably the fastest, well, other than maybe Dirk Nannis, maybe the fastest um, associate bowler that's ever uh, you know been around. And he, he smashes 98 not out, doesn't he, out of 200? I mean, it's a phenomenal effort for someone who is clearly still drunk. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it was Darlington Machambanato who, who told me that story. He, was, he played with Trevor at Universal's Cricket Club and was, was around about the Zim Board 11 with him as well. But it is something that Darlington mentioned as well, is that that's the first time he understood what the word talent means. If you can guard in that state against those bowlers and still make runs, you've clearly got something going. And again, to kind of bring it back to kind of Southern Africa, not just Zimbabwe, but Southern African drinking culture. There are other stories about cricketers doing similar things. I'm sure you remember someone called Guy Whittle, who, who also played for Zimbabwe, one of the few Zimbabweans to have scored more than two double hundreds in first class cricket. He tells the story of being in, in his in his twenties and playing for Zimbabwe, and he and he wasn't doing too well. Dave Houghton was the coach, and and his look tells him, "Guy, you know this is it for you. You need to make runs." I think it was against New Zealand. He's like, "We're going to bat you at four, but you need to make runs. This is your last chance." So his response, of course, is to go out that night and drink a bottle of scotch with his cousin Andy Whittle <laughs> and a friend. And it was only through their kind of efforts that he even made it to the ground the next day. But yeah, he was 60 not out overnight, went out the next day, hung over as anything and, and cracked 200. So uh, yeah, it's one of those stories. Yeah, I mean, we won't even go into the many, many Murray Goodwin stories as well, but there's certainly a very strong drinking culture around there. And we've talked about the lack of professionalism and the drinking. The other thing is that you talked about there being a strong black cricket culture, but we know because it was segregated, it wasn't on the, the same level, even by Zimbabwe standards, would have been a very amateur culture. It must have been very hard to be one of the few young black players who was seen, who was thought to be the next big thing. I mean, it was basically for a little while there, it was him and Henry Olonga, wasn't it? So there weren't a lot of older, grizzled mentors that had been through something like he'd been through before because there were either older black players who hadn't been through that level of cricket or there was older white players who didn't understand what it was like to be a young black player coming through the system. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a lot of pressure to put on a young person 
to have the weight of history on you. Like you're the first person of your race to do this in this situation. Um, and there's no structure that exists for pioneers like that. You know, that, that kind of thing only comes afterwards. Once that ground has already been tread, that's when people realize what the mistakes were and how things could have been done differently. So yeah, that's uh, something that many people I've spoken to about Trevor bring up that, that same point. That at junior school, at high school, to a certain extent, even at the provincial level, Trevor was part of a system that really looked after him. But once he got to the top and once he became a, a professional international cricketer, you're kind of on your own a little bit. And that's where something like having a community and a family history in the game comes in handy because you've got a safety net, basically. And these changes in, in our society and in, in cultures are often difficult and it takes someone like Trevor to do that and to make those mistakes and to have those successes as well, to show people what's possible. It makes it possible for the people who come after him to do what he's done and more. And he continues to make runs. So obviously the drinking has become a problem. The behavior, I suppose, on top of the drinking becomes a problem as well. If there is acceptable Southern African drinking and then there's unacceptable Southern African drinking, which is when it, you know you start to miss training sessions and, and these sorts of things. But because he's making runs, he gets picked. And he plays a test before he plays an ODI. Have I got that order right? Yeah, yeah. he made his test debut first, yes. Yeah, and he, he played against Pakistan. I'm going to read this out because I loved it. This is from Dave Houghton, who basically, before he goes out the bat, says, these guys know you're on debut, so whoever is bowling to you is going to go and try and knock your head off first to see if you've got any courage. And then when he sees that, he's going to try and break your toes. Which, just to put it in perspective, the bowler he was facing was Wakar Yudas. Yeah, hell of a pep talk. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> he might he might kill you. If he doesn't kill you, he might make you limp. <laughs> yeah, and that's the section of that quote that made it into the piece. There's more to it than that. And in that interview with Hart, and he, he goes on to say, uh, so you, you've got to have a plan. You know, you've got to decide, are you going to hook or are you going to duck? Because if you go out there and decide when you're on the pitch, it's not going to work. And he says, Trevor just kind of looked at him and he said, I'll be fine. Like... <laughs> I've got this. And it's worth mentioning too, I don't, because Houghton sort of missed out on, uh, I know he played some test cricket, some international cricket, but we sort of saw him when he was already finished. I mean, he was a phenomenal top level county player. He's still incredibly respected in county cricket. At that stage, he was probably the most respected Zimbabwean cricketer that had probably ever lived. I mean, Andy Flower probably takes that mantle off him in those few years. But, you know, and there's also the great story. Isn't he best friends with Nick Price? And they both were good at cricket and golf and out and pick cricket and, and Price picked golf. Isn't that the, yeah. <laughs> the running joke <laughs> that he might have picked the wrong sport when it comes to making lots of money? But, you know, yeah. he was a very respected player. And the fact that a young player can turn to him in, in, in the way that Madonna is and, and just go, it's okay, I've got this. I think that shows something about the way he thought about cricket. There might have been a lot of chaos outside of cricket and him being a professional and his life, but still fundamentally, he did understand this game on a huge level, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And that's something that was very much apparent in his youth and, and all through his playing days. And you mentioned kind of the chaos of the field and some of the, the outside distractions that, that he had to deal with and some of the hardships in his life. But when he was on the field, that's when he really kind of came into himself. There was a self-confidence there, a kind of a willingness to express himself, a belief, kind of everything else. And this, this has come from kind of my own reading and conversations with friends of his, but everything else kind of slipped into the background. When he was on the field, he was himself and he was, you know, very, very confident in that. 
And he didn't make many runs in that first test. I think he makes 14, doesn't bat in the mm. second innings. Second test, he starts by being run out without facing a ball. And he disappears from the team. But I think it's worth saying that, oh, I should say, he gets a six off Sakhalin Mushtaq, doesn't he? So I know he didn't make a lot of runs, but that was peak Sakhalin Mushtaq. If you could hit a six off him there, that's something worth a framing a picture of it and, and keeping it in your house. But it is worth pointing out that it was not just peak Sakhalin Mushtaq. This was the golden era of Zimbabwe cricket. This is when they made the quarterfinals of the 1990 World Cup. This is when they had incredible talent available to them a lot. So even though he disappears from the system, he was quite young and still developing. I don't think it's a slight on him that he wasn't playing every game at that point. It's just that they had the Flower Brothers and Alistair Campbell and Neil Johnson. Guys like that were coming and going. It was, I mean, and it still is, and hopefully it doesn't remain, the greatest period of Zimbabwe cricket. Yeah, what a middle order to try and break into. Yeah, it's absolutely one of the high watermarks of Zimbabwean cricket in the late 90s. They were winning every so often, but they were competing a lot and there was some serious talent and some experienced cricketers in, in that middle order. So it, chances for young batsmen were not as easy to find as they might have been in a weaker middle order. You could count had to take them where you could get them. You know, he didn't feature in a test match for a couple of years, Trevor, after that debut, but he was in and out of the one-day team. He was in the board 11 but it, it was hard to nail down a solid spot in the middle order. And you've got to remember as well that he he's only 21, 22 mm. at this point. So really, really only just at the beginning of what we could call like a, a professional career. We'll get to the ODIs in a second. There is an incident where he is in a Zimbabwe squad. He turns up half an hour late for a team bus and he gets thrown out of the squad Peter Chingoka, who we're going to have to explain very briefly, but Peter Chingoka was the most powerful man in cricket in the world at times around this period because he used Zimbabwe's vote as a swing vote with the ICC. And I still would say he's one of the most intelligent people to ever work in cricket administration. I wouldn't say he was particularly always a good person to have in cricket administration, although he certainly fought very hard for Zimbabwe. He gets involved. Now, Chingoka is Mugabe's right-hand man is one way that he was quite often <laughs> um, sort of described. I think that's maybe slightly overselling the relationship, but he certainly had a relationship with Mugabe. When he suddenly sees this young blank batsman being suspended from the team, he gets two, I think, Supreme Court judges, doesn't he, to get involved with seeing if there's any racism. This is the first time that that becomes a very big issue in Madondo's career, the fact that he's a young black batsman. He's clearly made a mistake. Clearly, he made a mistake in not being there for the team when he should have been there. But then it becomes a bit of a fury around his race and whether that played a part in him being thrown away so quickly. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in talking about this, one of the things we've got to kind of bring into it as well is where the country was at at the time. You know, something that strikes me often about Zimbabwe is just how much this country has changed in the course of a human lifetime. If we go back to the the 70s, through independence, the 1980s, 90s, now after 2000, this country has not stopped changing. There's been rapid change at many points in the last kind of 40, 50 years. And this was one of those points. So, you know, it was an intense time in Zimbabwe. And that kind of lent to the air of intensity to proceedings and the friction of change and the problems that can come up with different groups of people. You know, Zimbabwean cricket was obviously a, still at this point, Many of the board members and in terms of, of the structures of Zimbabwean cricket was still a white sport. Obviously, you had Peter Chingoka in charge from the time of, of test status in, in 92, but it was changing. And, and these are the, some, some of the issues that come up with, with that sort of change. 
And I don't say that to try and second guess anyone's intentions in this regard. In, in a sense, it's almost inevitable when change happens that these sorts of issues will come up. And you, you mentioned the, the judges who were brought in to kind of figure out what exactly happened here and to adjudicate on this problem. And their findings were that it's not that Trevor was necessarily treated differently or more harshly because of his race, because other players had also been treated in, in the same way. Stephen Peel is another Zimbabwe cricketer who was half an hour late for a practice and was chucked out of the squad at around a similar time. But there's more to it than that, mm. you know. He might not have been targeted or treated that unfairly because of his race, but that doesn't mean in their finding they say it in, in, in kind of different words, but that doesn't mean he was treated fairly by everyone and that there's a need for sensitivity around these issues. At that point, and the country is divided, so it would make sense at that point that the change room becomes divided as well. So it doesn't sound like, you know, reading back your piece and, you know, especially the Alonga quotes, but a few other things. You have white Zimbabwean farmers who are losing their land and who are really struggling with their life. And you have probably a lot of young black people who feel like they're entering this white world of cricket there is a real friction between those two. And Andy Flower did a brilliant interview recently with Neil Manthorpe for TalkSport, where, you know, he talks about having to learn all those sorts of things. And I've talked to a lot of old South African cricketers. They didn't always get that because they didn't understand what the other group had ever been through. And that's a, it's a fairly normal part of society. But it feels like Madondo, because he was a bit more volatile than someone like Olonga, who certainly grown in to be a very intelligent man, but maybe because of the drinking and because of everything else. Madondo almost feels like he was a lightning rod for both sides. He was the great black hope, but he was also the guy who wouldn't just turn up to training on time, the guy who was hung over and all those sorts of things. It must have put him emotionally in a very tough place in almost every time he was around that team. Yeah, absolutely. In trying to write about this, something that I've tried to just be aware of is that Trevor Madondo was... Uh, you can see in his story a lot of these factors coming into it. As you say, he was a lightning rod for, for all these different issues and was the guy who was part of a lot of these conversations. But at the same time, I'm quite wary of turning him into too much of a symbol of anything. And, you know, mm. it's, it's tricky because he, he was a symbol of certain things, but he's also a complex human being. Yeah. Whether he wanted to be a symbol or not, there is a certain point where <laughs> I mean, you talked about him as the pioneer before. It's very hard to be the pioneer and to be a young black batsman. And let's be honest, South Africa is still struggling with young black batsmen, let alone Zimbabwe. The fact that yeah. he was a young black African batsman at that time, it's impossible for him not to be a symbol. He just wants to go out and make runs. He loves playing cricket. He loves living life, even if he didn't always live it the way that he probably you know, should have. And yet he is thrown into all these different things. We know that this isn't just a Zimbabwean thing. You know, these sorts of issues come up in places like West Indies, even places like Australia. Jofra Archer is going through a similar thing. You know, Grinder Sandu and Usman Khawaja had to go through it in Australia. Anyone who is sort of a pioneer becomes a symbol and becomes a lightning rod. I think that Zimbabwe just made it so much trickier in that the actual country was twisting at the same time. And the dynamics of that... You know, even if he was like Basil D'Oliveira and was an apolitical player, <laughs> you know, you can't be. Unfortunately for him, you couldn't be. Yeah, history happens to you, <laughs> whether you like it or not. All these things kind of wrapped up into it. But I've always tried to, I always tried to, in, in writing about his life, feel the responsibility of ask questions rather than give definitive answers about who Trevor was and let the complexity of this person, let him just be a person as well as being all these other things to show both sides of that. 
One thing that would be interesting is that not a lot have been written about him. I remember him very briefly as a player and I remember him passing, but not so much more than that. You wrote about the, his funeral and we'll, we'll get to what happened there in a moment. But as far as the cricket community, when the piece came out, because I always find when you write a piece like this, you've talked to, by the look of about 15 or 20 different people to try and paint as, as wide a picture. But the minute you write a piece like this, it gets out onto Twitter and Facebook. All these other people would get in touch with you. How accurate do you think the portrait that you sort of painted of him was? As accurate as I could possibly make it. You know, you can always speak to more people. And there are people who, since I've written the piece I've gotten in touch with who I wish I had spoken to while I was writing it. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly long piece. It comes in over 7,000 words. It's a really long form article. Yeah, but even so, there was, there was so much I couldn't, I have so much more material yeah. that I couldn't put into it. But, you know, my, my motivation was, you know, a lot of people in the wider cricket community might have heard of Trevor Madondo, but what you've heard of him is that is how he died, almost. He's a cricketer who died. And I wanted to write about how he lived. Mm. That was my motivation. I've had some positive feedback. But at the end of the day, you've kind of got to leave some of that ambiguity and complexity in, in the text and let people make their own minds up. Try and show what happened with Trevor rather than tell people exactly what the truth of this man was. One thing we're talking about that, Olonga, and I think this is a quote from his book. Did you actually talk to Olonga for this piece or not? I spoke to him a while back for a different piece, but we ended up having a really long conversation about all sorts of different things to do with Zimbabwean cricket and the way things changed and the way things happened back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then, of course, I read his book. So between that conversation we had probably about a year ago now, and obviously reading his biography, that's where I kind of got his voice from. It seems that he felt that some of the white players were not big fans and there was a, a bit of a, a schism there. Is that something you felt going back? Because that's the sort of thing that at the time that would come out, but over time I could imagine people looking back and not feeling the same way, if that makes sense. If you had a teammate that you thought was consistently letting you down, you'd be very frustrated at them. They then pass away, you would vent, but that may be not how you would feel going forward. As you were going forward, you realize that you probably played a part that you didn't. And, and, you know, I mean, Alistair Campbell talks about the fact that he wishes he could have done more for Trevor, doesn't he? So, I mean, yeah. I wondered, you know, if you felt that there was maybe some older players who just felt like they could have done more. Well, there's a whole lot to be learned in, in hindsight and the way people think about things and the things that people believe do, do change in time from some of the older white players and some of the older black players, you know, not that he's old, but Darlington Tambanazo is someone who I spoke to who was one of Trevor's contemporaries. And he said, if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, I would have had a completely different answer for you mm. on Trevor. But now I'm a bit older and inevitably I understand the situation a little more. I could have spoken to a lot more people than I did for this piece. And if I'm able to kind of expand this into a bigger project, obviously I, I would do that and try and get an even more complete picture. So there are some gaps there, but but certainly I do, I do get the sense that people's attitudes mellow over time and that there's definitely a different understanding now of what things mean as to what people believed they meant back then. Yeah. So he plays the two tests, sadly gets run out without facing a ball in a test match, which has got to be one of the worst things that's ever happened to any young test batsman. And it happened to him twice oh. as well. Not once, but twice. 
Although the other time wasn't a one day game. One days don't even count. Oh, oh yeah, you're right. I'm just having a look at that. Oh, that's crazy. So you played what 15 international games and was run out without facing a ball on two occasions. Well, I mean, if that isn't a record, I don't know what is. But he plays a lot of one days. And he doesn't set the world on fire. I think that's fair to say. I think he, he plays 13 one days and makes 190 runs. His best innings, though, is against India. And that's a team with Sri Sri Ram, a very talented bowler, although he didn't play a lot of international cricket, but Ajit Agarka, Benkitesh Prasad. And he doesn't just make runs in that innings. He makes 71 off 70 balls. And this is in, what, 2000, 2001? At that point, scoring at that rate was quite revolutionary. If you could do that against a very decent Indian team, and that was in India as well, wasn't it? So it certainly showed that he had a lot of skill, and this wasn't just an average cricketer, was it? Even if his overall record doesn't look like that. But as you said, he started so young. Yeah, and this is a case where just looking at the numbers, the average and, and stuff like that really, really doesn't give you the complete picture of, of who he was as a cricketer and what he was capable of. I mean, I was young at the time, so I, I only remember a couple of Trevor's innings, but that one in particular is one that stands out in my memory. The other one is when he played in a team when Australia toured. It was after the World Cup, late 99, and he hit the, one of the biggest sixes I've ever seen at Harare Sports Club and, and top scored 29. But certainly that innings against India, something certainly clicked there. Mm. It was not just striking the ball hard. And, you know, Trevor used to drive on the app. He was, he was really good through the offside against the quicks, especially. But he was scoring around the wicket. And as you say, 21 years ago, it was not normal to see someone score so quickly as an opener in a one-day game. I mean, I know Sri Lanka, obviously. Yeah, there was a couple, but it's not. Yeah, but it was not common. No, that, I mean, the minute, I mean, you and I both grew up in a similar era. The minute we saw someone scoring at more than a run of ball, it was something like, that, that we noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. for a young black Zimbabwean player to be able to do that against a good team as well, what, three years later, India is in the World Cup final. I know they is a completely different bowling attack, to be fair, but these are not bad players. Ajitagaka is not a bad player. Ben Katesh was very yeah. tricky. It's, it's a decent lineup. So I think that says a lot. He plays his last ODI in Perth yeah. against the West Indies. He, he makes 10. That is in February of 2001. Can you take me through from February 2001 until uh, June 2001? Well, yeah, that was, that was a really long tour that Zimbabwe had been on. I think they'd started the year before in Sharjah, somewhere like that. It was a three, four-month tour that ended up in Australia with this tri-series playing Australia and, and the West Indies. Zimbabwe get home from that tour and it's obviously cricket season. There's some cricket happening, but the season ends February, March. There was nothing until kind of late April, I think. Anyway, by the time they got home, they, were, they had a couple of months with not uh, a whole lot to do. End of the season, Trevor went on a kind of little holiday, kind of a safari in the Victoria Falls, Chobe region. It's in the, the Zambezi Valley in the northwest of Zimbabwe. And, you know, was, was gone for a couple of weeks and came back, and it was still kind of in and around the squad. He came to team meetings and things like that. Was that like a mental health break? I mean, I, that's not what we would have called it then, but was he just trying to get away from everything? That's the impression I got from talking to people, that he kind of just tore out of town and it's like, I'm out for a couple of weeks. Definitely kind of getting away from it all at the end of a long season. I haven't been able to find out if he might have been injured at this time or, or what exactly the reason was that he didn't remain with the squad when the squad came back together to play in the tests that followed kind of mid-year. But he was overlooked. Having just 
made runs in that test against New Zealand. They're looking kind of at home in international cricket for one of the first times, then not to be picked. That's something that I have not been able to find absolute clarity on why that was the case. But in any case, he wasn't in the squad Mm. at the end of the season and was doing his own thing. So he comes back. He's still obviously drinking quite a lot at this stage. And it sounds like there were people sort of trying to look after him as much as I suppose we did in those days compared to how we do now. What happens next when he comes back? Well, he goes out one night. The players have these um, sponsored vehicles. that they were, I think they were Mazda 323s at the time or something like that. And he went out for quite a big night. Um, as you say, there, there were people kind of around him and, and trying to look after him. But obviously, I don't want to say not well enough, but, you know, the drinking is still there. It's still an issue. And and on the on his way home, he has a, a car accident. It's not a major accident. The car's not a write-off or anything. But he has his, his bell rung by it, and he's a little shaken by it and seemed to be suffering from the effects of the concussion, from the accident, or at least that was what people thought at the time. But, but I mean, obviously, in hindsight, that was shown not to be the case because he was meant to have recovered from whatever concussion he might have had in a couple of weeks, but these symptoms didn't go away. He ended up actually first going to a hospital in Matari, which is his hometown in Eastern Highlands. That's where his family is from as well. That's where his family still lives. And they didn't think it was anything too serious. He did go to hospital, but it wasn't thought of as anything too serious. So he left Matari to go back to Harare and, yeah, staying in a, in a bachelor flat in, a, in the suburbs. Still very close friends with Darlington Matambanadzo and his twin brother Everton, who also played cricket for Zimbabwe. And of the Matambanadzo family, when he's uh, away from home, away from Matari, he was kind of their, their surrogate family in a, in, a, in a way. I mean, I don't want to make too much of it, but he, he saw the family a lot. And it was a traditional thing where they'd all go for brunch at the Matambanadzo house on a weekend and just didn't turn up one day. And Darlington, when I spoke to him, suggested that, you know, they, they didn't think anything was too wrong. They thought, oh, he's probably gone out. You know, he might be hungover. Well, we'll just go pick him up, whatever. And yeah, they got there. They knew he was inside, but he wasn't answering. Eventually, they had to kick the door down to get inside because clearly something was not right. And as Darlington tells it, Trevor was already not conscious at that point. They took him straight to hospital, but he never woke up. And well, the accident was partially probably caused by his drinking, but also because of this other ailment he had. And it, he picked up something when he was um, on the safari, didn't he? Indeed, yes. The Zambezi Valley, it's, in, it's what they call the low fault in, in, in Zimbabwe and South Africa as well. So in these low-lying regions, uh, malaria is a serious issue, especially at that time of the year. It's the end of the rainy season. There's a lot of water around. It's very hot. So malaria is a serious problem there and continues to be in Zimbabwe. And the most dangerous kind of malaria you can get is cerebral malaria, which is when the malaria attacks the brain and obviously has symptoms very similar to what you'd get from a concussion, you know, like headaches, fuzziness, confusion. So ultimately, uh, that's how he died. But that's something that was only discovered after the fact. It was almost a a series of, I don't want to say failures, but a series of, of assumptions that led to the situation where no one knew exactly what was wrong with him and assumed it was something that it was not and assumed it was something that was much less serious than it turned out to be. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, it's almost like a domino, isn't it? Like, because he's the first black batsman coming through, there's a lot of pressure on him. He doesn't feel quite at home. 
He doesn't just turn to drinking, but he's consistently drinking. There's a pressure there. He comes back. There's obviously some sort of mental health issues that he has, whether it just be, you know, stress or or depression. And he tries to self-medicate and also drives away. Everything was leading up to that point. You could understand why a doctor might see all of those sorts of signs coming in and not automatically think that he had something else. But And it's obviously easy to write this in retrospect, but it does feel like he was careering towards something. And unfortunately, in this particular case, it was a very, very random thing that actually took him. Yeah, a very random thing and and a fairly rare thing. I mean, I, I know I said that malaria is an issue in Zimbabwe, and it is, but it's rare that someone catches cerebral malaria. It's the most serious type, but it's also more rare to have that type. You know, you mentioned that he was kind of careering towards something, but at the same time, there were signs that he was starting to find out who he was and what he was capable of and what was needed of him to be a professional. But he wasn't quite there yet in terms of really knowing who he was as a person and really coming into his own as a cricketer. It was at that crossroads. He was 24. I mean... He was 24. So young. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that age, I was just walking around naked, bumping into things. So (laughs) to be in his situation with everything that's going on in his life at that point, you can understand why, you know, he's trying to make the best of it in what was an imperfect situation. It was an imperfect situation politically, but it was also an imperfect professional situation. I mean, Zimbabwe was still coming along. I want to just talk about the innings in New Zealand. Yeah. He's playing in New Zealand, playing against them. And Zimbabwe's trying to set up a total to have a chance of winning the game. Can you take us through that? Yeah, it had been one of those test matches that had, I mean, they'd lost a day to weather, for starters, and then had been one of those tests where you're kind of getting to day four towards day five, and each team has only batted once. It was still Zimbabwe's first innings on day four. So it had moved quite slowly. It was what I call it anyway. A feather bed wicket. I'm sure anyone, uh, cricket people know what that means. The old basin. Uh. <laughs> yeah. It, it is not an easy wicket to necessarily take wickets on, but also not that easy to score runs on. A little slow. So the test match had, had moved slowly. On the eve of the fifth day, there's a team meeting in the Zimbabwe camp. And between um, coach and the seniors, they think, look, this test match has probably gone, but let's try and manufacture something here. Let's see what we can do with a declaration, maybe catch New Zealand by surprise. And that's the score they ultimately chose to declare, I think it was 340 for six, something like that. It was behind New Zealand's first innings total. But that was the scoreline that they thought we'll declare when we reach 340. And the top order had done pretty well. If I remember correctly, Gavin Rennie scored runs as an mm-hmm. opener. Andy Flower got some runs in the middle. And Trevor also scored runs in a, you know, early on in his career, he had this reputation of just trying to hit everything, trying to dominate bowlers instead of just playing the situation. But yeah, you know, it was a controlled innings. He could attack the ball, but he also defended for long periods. He didn't look like he was rushing towards anything. He was just doing his thing. He happened to be batting with Heath Streak at the time when they reached 340. And Alonga speaks about watching this all happen from the team balcony and this kind of ripple of excitement or expectation starts to build that, wow, you know, Trevor's looking good for a hundred here. He can get a ton, but then uh, there's the declaration. And, you know, he's not that, you know, he, he wasn't on 99. He wasn't in the nineties or he was on 74, but he was batting fluently and he was getting there. So there was, you know, you've, you've spoken about 
different groups of people's different perceptions of things. And, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that there was any malice in the declaration from Heath Streak or anything like that. And when one of the veteran journalists I spoke to, Enoch Muchinjo, who's been around in Zimbabwean cricket for years and covered cricket at that time and still does, he was at pains to remind me, you know, like at this time in Zimbabwean cricket, individual milestones didn't really matter to the team. It was all about what's good for the team. Just to kind of clarify that, I don't think there was any malice in it. But at the same time, there's a certain a lack of insight or a, an unawareness of, of the context of how things might be seen by the outside in the broader scheme of things. At this time in Zimbabwean history, this player in particular is going to score a test 100 and then the declaration comes to cut him short. You could speak to a hundred different Zimbabweans and they'd all have a different opinion about the wisdom or otherwise of the declaration and the complexities that went into it. And I, I don't particularly see it as my responsibility to either to try and give a definitive answer about, about what this meant. It meant different things to different people. It happened. It, it was what it was. As I said, I don't think there was any malice there, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's inevitable that this is not going to be seen in a good light in light of the, of the changes, the wider changes that are happening in Zimbabwean society and in cricket. So it was and remains um, a fairly touchy subject, but one as well, I think that people shouldn't be afraid to talk about. A lot of the problems that came up in Zimbabwean cricket at the time were from people not talking to each other and assuming other people's intentions, you know, a lack of communication and a lack of understanding between different groups of people. And perhaps a, a lot of that can be solved if people are just a bit more open and willing to discuss things and willing to see each other and understand each other and open to all sorts of different points of views. And I think that's how we come to some consensus about what things mean. I mean, for me, it's almost lyrical, the fact that his greatest innings in international cricket ends unfinished and doesn't end up at 100, because that's essentially, it's everything about him in one thing, isn't it? it you know, that yeah. the fact that it happened, we have no idea where he could have gone. There are lots of young batsmen who are thrown into international cricket who at 27, 28 are just not playing anymore or, or not anywhere near the international level. And the opposite could have happened. He could have gone on to be, you know, another in the great lineup of Zimbabwean batsmen. And we're kind of left in the middle, but that's how we are with his life. And if you die at 24, you know, tragic circumstances like he did, it's all there, isn't it? In that one innings, the complexity of race, of cricket, of where Zimbabwean cricket was, it all plays out in that one innings. It's such a phenomenal moment, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. There are all these little synchronicities and moments in, in Trevor's life and in Trevor's career. And this in particular is one of those. It's one of the reasons I felt so much the responsibility to kind of tell this story human beings are we're, we're narrative creatures and and there's nothing that that hooks us in like a good story and and the story of trevor's life is an amazing story it's all there as you said it's it's, it's all there and there is something sad and something poignant but also something quite poetic about that i think i said in the piece that his, his life didn't end with a full stop it ended with a question mark and that's the way we remain that's how it's going to be and you know that's okay that's how Trevor continues to have an impact in Zimbabwean society and in Zimbabwean sport. Because, yeah, who's to say what might have happened, where he could have gone, what he might have achieved? You know, he, he could well have been captain after 2004. He certainly would have been a senior player. He could have been the mentor that he never had. 
Absolutely. And when, what a vital role he would have played as a mentor in that team that, that had, was kind of dropped into the deep end of things in 2004 when the, the rebel cricketers walked away and there's a bunch of 19 year olds making up the national team. Trevor would have been quite possibly the one to keep it all together. But that question, that potentiality will always be there. It always get us talking about people like Trevor Madonna and the way we have. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. Thank you.